Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to Sunday Night Church. Sunday Night Matters. It's important. Uh, even though we're not in the sanctuary together and I'm kind of here by myself, nobody, nobody can keep Sunday night for you during this pandemic. Like, you have to make the effort. You have to keep Sunday night important. We're looking at this repentance series. Wanting to is good, knowing how is better. We started on this topic last Sunday night and are continuing it th tonight. Ongoing repentance and the future freedom from the bondage and power of sin. And it's future freedom that I want to emphasize. We're looking at Matthew. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. Let me just read it through. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, quote, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who has spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. I want to talk a couple of weeks down the road why you have this physical description of John the Baptist and why it matters. Verse 5, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. So a lot of people. They were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. That's what they did as they were baptized. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, that's to the religious leaders, you brood of vipers, descendants of the serpent. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is not just an outward religious routine that you can be baptized and have people watch you. There's, there's the fruit of repentance that goes with it. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. That's what they would say instead of repenting. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Verse 8. Every tree that doesn't bear fruit, it's a repentance issue, is, is uh, cut down and thrown into the fire. That's how important repentance is. 11, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff, he, that's Jesus, he will burn with unquenchable fire. What a text. We, we studied uh, the, first of, the first two of four points last Sunday night. And all of them kind of pivot around this single idea that repentance, at least New Testament repentance, always has to do with sin. We're repenting of sin. The people came confessing their sins. However much or little the church talks about sin anymore, 
Repentance in the New Testament is an absolutely meaningless concept unless we understand what sin is, define sin, categorize it as a category against which God exercises judgment and wrath. So New Testament repentance always has to do with sin, thinking rightly about sin, calling sin, sin with New Testament understanding. And I said there were four points about sin that we were going to look at. The first two we studied last Sunday night. The point number one was sin always defines uh, the fundamental inability that we have on our own to measure up before a holy God. Uh, Paul in Ephesians, we're dead, dead in trespasses and sins. That's apart from Christ. Uh, Romans, we all fall short of the glory of God. On our own, apart from Christ, we fall short. We can't get there. We can't reach. We can't measure up. The second point we looked at is sin is always an act of rebellion against God. So just as surely as uh, apart from Christ, we lack the ability to please God in our own strength. That's point number one. We also have an inward self that's unwilling to submit to God. Romans 1 kind of a theme. We we are, by nature, biased against God. We suppress the truth that would convict us of sin. So, So the important point here is sin is always measured by calculating God into the picture. It's rebellion against God. It's not just my fears, my lack of self-esteem, uh, my inner weaknesses. It's, it's, it's a rebellion against God. Sin becomes official in that sense. There are two more points on the nature of sin that I want to I look at tonight, particularly as it has to do with repentance and particularly as it has to do with repentance and deliverance from future bondage to sin. Here are two more points defining the nature of sin as it relates to repentance. So point number three, we looked at one and two. Whatever is not of faith is sin. There's a fascinating verse where those words are sort of lifted out of. Romans 14, 23. Paul says, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. And then he says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now, before I look at the the truth of that verse, I want to expose what I at least have seen several times as a misinterpretation, a cruel misinterpretation of those words, whatever is not of faith is sin. I'll talk about the context of Romans 14 in just a second. But here's what I think is a misinterpretation of those words, whatever is not of faith is sin. I've actually seen this happen. Someone is being prayed for, perhaps for healing. The miracle doesn't come. The healing doesn't come. And then someone, some teacher, some leader, will come to analyze the situation and will say something like this. Well, because healing is promised in the Scripture and because you are not healed, then you must not have exercised enough faith, and whatever is not of faith is sin. So perhaps there must be some sin blocking faith 
in your heart, get rid of sin, get rid of doubt, get rid of unbelief, and then you will be healed. It's guaranteed. And I think, beside being cruel, it's a terrible way to interpret those words from Paul. Because I think there's a rich nugget of understanding in these sometimes uh, overlooked words about the nature of sin and the deceitful ruin it can bring into lives. So let's look at it. Whatever is not of faith is sin. Repentance always has to do with sin. Whatever is not of faith is sin. And And I think that has to be one of the most penetrating definitions of sin in the whole Bible. Because immediately, it removes sin from the realm of my normal list of do's and don'ts. And it it sweeps our understanding of sin into the realm of um, attitudes and motives and dispositions. So, So Paul, in those words, whatever is not of faith is sin, he's not dealing with any one particular action. He's dealing with the root of what could be serious sin in our lives. And here's the weird thing. Those words found in that verse, they arise out of a context where the actions in themselves aren't sinful at all. The issue is that of eating foods that some saw as unclean. So some people felt that Christians had the right to eat all foods, and others felt that Christians had to avoid meats that had been in some way pronounced unclean, maybe offered to an idol somewhere or inappropriate to eat. Now, Paul makes it clear where he stands, at least twice in that 14th chapter. Um, fourteen, Verse 14, Paul says, I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. And then he says it again in verse 20, everything is indeed clean. There it is. But it's wrong for anyone to make another brother stumble by what he eats. Okay, and yet, after saying all of this, Paul still says, that if a person is convinced that the eating of these meats is wrong, even though the act itself, he says, isn't sinful, the person who eats while thinking the eating is sin is guilty of sin because whatever is not of faith is sin. Not a fake sin, but a a real guilt-producing sin. Now, I just think those are really deeply searching words. I think we need to pay attention as Paul gives this fuller, deeper definition of sin. And he he says it can't properly be defined just in terms in the mere act of eating and drinking. Sin must be defined not merely by the act, but the heart behind the act. So so to find out why eating this meat is sinful for the person who thinks it is sinful, but eats anyway, we need to ask another question. Here's the question we need to ask. What would make a person eat this meat 
if he honestly thought eating it was a sin? That's the question. What would make this person eat meat if he honestly thought in his heart that eating this meat was sinful? What would motivate that person's eating? Well, there's a couple of possibilities. He may eat because he felt pressure from others to go ahead and eat against his convictions. Now, that would fit very well with the context of the weaker brother, stronger brother in Romans 14. It would fit well there. Or perhaps this person went ahead and ate just because he really loved meat. Thought it was wrong, but he wanted it. So he was just tempted and he caved in to the desires of his appetite. But, but whatever his reasons, we, we know this much for sure. At some point, he ate the meat, even though he thought it was wrong to do so. And he ate because somehow he thought he would be happier, more accepted by others, more satisfied than if he didn't eat. So, so in other words, there was some other concern, some other desire, we don't know for sure what, some other factor that at least for that moment, it became more important than the confidence that obeying God would bring the most blessing and satisfaction in the long run. And just for that moment, even though his judgment about eating meat was mistaken, just for that moment, eating that meat was more important to him than pleasing God. There it is. Eating that meat, be it peer pressure, just temptation, whatever the reason, eating that meat was more important than pleasing God, and that is a perfect description of a sinful heart. That's a heart that isn't standing in good faith before God. And so, here we see Paul exposing the root of sinful actions. Righteousness stems from the heart. Sin, says John Piper, sin is anything, any act, any emotion, any attitude that does not sprout from the soil of a rich confidence in the God of hope. Whatever is not of faith is sin. And, and the reason I think Paul picks up this issue of eating meat which isn't a sinful act, like committing adultery or, or a homosexual act or stealing. The reason Paul picks this issue of eating meat is precisely because in this action of eating meat, the heart issue, the issue of motive, it can be clearly isolated because the act in itself isn't sinful at all. So the sinfulness is in the motive. It's in the desire. The thing is, if you train your heart to go against its inward convictions in some small matter like eating meat, you will have it easy to go against your convictions when you're tempted in some more serious matter. In other words, the simple rule is it's always a sin to train your will to act against conscience. It's always a sin to train your will to act against conscience. It, it's, it's not the subject tonight, but it's also why 
It's such a serious matter to cause your brother or sister to stumble against their convictions, even in some area where you know you have complete freedom in Christ to do what you're doing. He may not have that freedom, and you may be training him to go against his convictions later on in some serious issue of obedience or disobedience to the Lord. In our Romans 14.3 text, whatever is not of faith is sin, we, we, we start to see the importance of those, you know those Old Testament words of keeping your heart with all diligence? We see the importance of never violating the inward sense of compulsion or restraint. We see that nothing, even an innocent act, must be allowed to draw, draw our devotion away to God alone. We face these kind of situations. Here's why we're studying it. We face these kinds of situations over and over again in life. Um, You've been offered a promotion, a new job in Winnipeg. It's more money you're going to be paid. Housing is cheaper in Winnipeg. And immediately, while all the excitement begins to percolate, you, you feel something else happening in your heart. And you try to crowd out those thoughts about how well your kids are doing in the youth group and how hard it is to find a good church home. You you try to just focus on how much you can reduce your mortgage if you move to Winnipeg. And little by little, you push back those darker feelings and questions until they really don't bother you anymore. See, this is really important because there's not a verse in the Bible to tell you whether or not to move to Winnipeg. Look it up in your concordance. But don't do anything that you can't do in good faith, because whatever is not of faith is sin. Don't do, here's a life lesson. Don't do anything that can only be justified by making other considerations more important than spiritual considerations. I can make more money. I can get a bigger house. No, bring spiritual commitments into the picture. Whatever is not of faith is sin. Okay, four, this is the last point. To fail to do what we know we should do is sin. So this isn't doing anything, it's neglecting something. James 4, 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. How often I've heard this from people, and I've felt it myself, but how often I've heard, you know, Pastor Don, I really feel like the Lord has been dealing with my heart lately. I I really think I ought to, and there's that little word, ought. I I really ought to spend more time with my wife. I really ought to make sure I'm getting my kids out to youth groups. I really ought to start tithing. I really ought to pay for those stamps I've been using from the office. I really ought to quit smoking. I really ought to treat my employees better than I do. I really ought to get out to church more consistently, more regularly. I mean, the list, the list is absolutely endless. And they don't all apply in the same way to everyone but they describe so perfectly this simple process 
of the Spirit of God in direct, simple terms where the Holy Spirit puts his finger right into your chest and says, Don, you really ought to do. Well, what about it, Pastor Don? What are you saying? Am I really going to go to hell for not taking my family to church when I feel like I ought to? Is that how it works? Oh, people love asking silly questions. I don't think I don't think heaven or hell is necessarily the issue with most of those promptings, maybe at least not at the beginning. I don't think heaven and hell ride on every single individual prompting from the Holy Spirit. But let me let me try and let me try and tell you and it relates to the title how repentance brings deliverance from future bondage. Let me let me tell you what I do think happened. I do think happens in homes and churches all across Canada every week as a result of people not responding to the prompting of the Holy Spirit about things they ought to do. Imagine with me. Imagine we can all gather together like we used to. It's Sunday night. It's prayer time. Prayer time at Cedarview Community Church. Only it's not September 2020. It's September 2028. And the prayer list gets handed out and people read the names at that prayer time in September 2028. And there it is. Please pray for my son, Willie. And I'm just pulling that name out of a hat. He's not serving the Lord. He's far from God. He has no interest in spiritual things. There seems to be no hope of him ever getting his life sorted out. And of course, there's no way, no way that congregation knows in September 2028, there's no way that congregation, as they go to prayer for Willie, they can't, they can't know that that request would never even have been there in 2028 if way back in September 2020, a father had been listening when the Holy Spirit with, with nothing but grace and love and provision in his heart, the Holy Spirit said to that father, you know, you really ought to get your family out to youth group. And in 2028, no one's going to know that there's someone that just did not listen when the Holy Spirit called for repentance. Whenever God speaks and says, Don, you really ought to do so-and-so, don't get a picture of God just wanting to beat me over the head for being disobedient. Whenever, whenever the Holy Spirit says, Don, you really ought to do such-and-such, so-and-so, I will, miss, I will miss the future grace that would have been manifested in my life by not paying attention to him. God always speaks to free my life from the consequences of sin I can't even see yet, and he calls me presently to repent. Nothing can save my life from that, that future axe head of judgment if I fail to respond repentantly when the Holy Spirit speaks to my heart. I said 
the beginning of this teaching that I want to wrap up by describing again the call to repentance, particularly as it's offered to these religious people, these scribes, these Pharisees. Repentance is always issued to people who know better than they live. Repentance is what you do after you come to understand what God is saying to your heart. It always deals with sin in one of these areas. And, 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 and because this is so, there's always the particular temptation to avoid repentance by pretending that religious knowledge and ceremony, the scribes and the Pharisees, pretending that religious knowledge and ceremony is by itself enough to produce godliness. We have Abraham as our father. What do you mean, confess our sins? We have Abraham as our father. It's the cry of religion trying to avoid repentance. And that's why John's words are so stark and raw. They aren't loveless. They're meant to poke a hole in their delusion. John sees the potential in them and in religiously up people in all generations, people like us at Cedar View Community Church, to become a generation of vipers who know the most and repented the least. So there's, there's nothing to force repentance in people who hear and know the truth. And the accumulation of more and more knowledge will become totally fruitless to transform the heart. So that ongoing call to repentance, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Those aren't the words of an angry, love, loveless God or a goofy, desert-crazed prophet. They're, they're, they're the way the Holy Spirit works to keep people like me from bondage I can't even see yet. Whatever is not of faith is sin. Keep the desire for God at the top of every decision. Spiritual concerns first, other things second. And that little prompting voice that says, Don, you really ought, you really ought. And, and, and there's no list of the consequences that are going to come down the road. The Holy Spirit just wants me to trust and obey. Remember we used to sing it? And let that ongoing repentance free my life from bondage I can't even see yet. Repentance. What you do after you perceive what the Lord is saying to your heart. Let's pray. Oh, how we thank you, Lord Jesus, for the way your word your spirit, the body of Christ, conscience, all these things combined together as your divine way of freeing us, freeing us from bondage we don't see yet. Help us to always live in good faith before you. Help us to always yield immediately without, without an ounce of self-reliance when your Holy Spirit speaks to our heart. Oh, how we love your grace and goodness. Help us to trust you when the summons to repentance comes to our heart. May we respond 
My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. In Jesus' name I pray it. And I hope you can say the amen. Amen. God bless the church. Stay in the word. Keep a repentant heart. Love one another.